are listening to audio from The Table. If you'd like to learn more about our community or donate to this ministry, please visit thetabletx.org. Podcast listeners, grace in peace. Welcome. So glad you could be with us. So we are in a series right now titled First Peter Part 2, where we are walking through this small but Truly a remarkable book uh, from the New Testament. So the title of my message is Make Christians Peculiar Again. Our primary text is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, Peter writes, a holy nation, God's special possession, other translations say a peculiar people, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So where I'd like to focus tonight is on that last verse, verse 12. It's a strange one, isn't it? Live such good lives among the pagans, i.e. the unbelievers, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So basically Peter's exhorting them to live among people who do not believe in Christ, such that though the unbeliever's initial response is like, hey, wait, that's not right. That's That's not the way we do things. That's weird. You believe what? You think what? Wait, I thought, I thought you were in our tribe. I thought you were on our team. So you can see there's like a certain puzzlement. And yet in the end, wisdom is proved right by her actions, as Jesus said. In other words, the results of your life begin to speak for themselves. So here we are right back to a theme that we saw in chapter one of this book of 1 Peter. It's basically the idea that Christians are a people called by God to have particular beliefs and a story and values and practices. And this in turn leads us to be a certain kind of people, a Christ-like people. But of course, this is precisely the problem of American Christianity. If you're a note taker, you can write this down. The crisis of American Christianity is that we are no longer a peculiar people. We are salt that has lost its saltiness. We are light bulbs that have lost their illumination. I think that's true beyond politics, but of course it is on full display in the way our political allegiances have now overshadowed our commitment to Christ. We have been so powerfully discipled by, depending on your age bracket and political persuasion, CNN or Fox News or of particular Facebook groups or Twitter feeds or social media influencers, that it never really occurs to us to ask, in what ways is my political tribe not aligned with Christ? This is why, as a Christian, I am way less interested in, worried about, obsessing over, build America back better. I am way less interested in, make America great again, As a follower of Christ, what I'm absolutely committed to is make Christians peculiar again. And I get it. Like Peter's writing 2,000 years ago. So it can seem, I don't know, somewhat remote and kind of like, you know, what on earth does Peter have to say to us today? 
But actually, it's not hard to bridge the gap at all because, you see, Peter is writing as a Christian to a group of Christians embedded in the Roman Empire. And Rome was the most powerful, influential culture at that time. So Peter is writing to his church, and he just keeps hammering home. We saw it in chapter 1. We're seeing it again in chapter 2. Just ad nauseum about, like— Um, basically how they're a chosen people. They're God's special possession, a peculiar people. They need to live in different ways such that the people around them are like, wait, huh? That's not, that's not right. That's not what we think. In other words, it's like he's trying to say, church, to be in step with Christ is to love. Of course you love, right? Love your people, your tribe, your nation, and yet to consistently be out of step with them. Like, that's the thing I'm getting at. How out of step are you with those other tribes? Now, we could keep this kind of high level, but for it to really challenge us, I think we need to get specific. So I've chosen three ways. The early church was in step with Christ, but out of step with their culture. And hopefully it will shine a light on um, how we live today as a chosen people, as a peculiar people. All right, so number one, Christians were weirdly unpatriotic. Did you know that before and after Peter was writing, there was something operating in Rome called the imperial cult. It was basically emperor and empire worship. It was the deification of the nation. Here's a a fascinating um, example of this. It's known as the Prian inscription. It was a a piece of imperial propaganda found by archaeologists in an ancient Roman province. It reads like this. The most divine Caesar... We should consider equal to the beginning of all things, for when everything was falling into disorder and tending toward dissolution, he restored it once more and gave the whole world a new aspect. Caesar, who being sent to us and our descendants as Savior, has put an end to war. He set all things in order, and whereas having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. The birthday of the God Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of good news, that is, gospel concerning him. So notice, early Christians like Peter and Paul and others took all of the titles from Roman culture ascribed to Caesar. And what do they do? They began referring to Christ in those ways. In other words, the implication was Caesar is not Lord. Rather, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior. Jesus brings the true peace. Can you see why the early Christians were accused of being unpatriotic and were eventually persecuted for this? They weren't willing to see Rome as being the hope of the world. And at that time, it was peculiar. Okay, so what does this mean for us? Well, obviously, we aren't commanded to worship our country or the president. And yet, there are all of these little rituals we have, don't we? Ways of venerating and holding up America as something we pledge ourselves to, something we give ourselves to in ways that... You know, should early Christians somehow have been able to observe us, I think it would have likely raised their eyebrows as they wonder if we aren't inching towards saying America is Lord. Like, for example, in schools, we, of course, grew up putting our hand over our heart and pledging our allegiance to the flag. In the last few years, there was a lot of controversy around um, Colin Kaepernick kneeling during the national anthem and 
who was largely leading the charge questioning his patriotism and love of country? Christians. Can you see how from the early church's perspective and from our writer's uh, our writer Peter's perspective, that's like that's a bizarre thing for Christians to do. I think they'd probably ask, "What why are you so worked up about this? Like why do you have a pony in that race? Because for them to go under the baptismal waters was to pledge allegiance to a new king, King Jesus. All right, second reason or second um, way that early Christians were quite peculiar. Christians were deeply imposed to infanticide. So in the ancient world, the practice of abortion was um, incredibly dangerous like to the mother. They just didn't have the the surgical sophistication to do it safely at all. So what they often opted for was what was known as infant exposure or infanticide. So basically, when a baby in Roman culture was born, um, that didn't mean the child was automatically accepted into the family. There was a period of waiting where they basically saw like, okay, is this child normal? Is it the right gender we were hoping for? Um, Is it, you know, just simply, was it needed and wanted in the family? So then up to kind of a few days of contemplation, Um, after that, the father of the household would basically say like either, okay, yes, we accept this child or no. If the answer was no, then the child was taken to the edge of the city or the town and left to die of exposure or to on occasion be picked up by brothel owners or slave traders. Okay. So what was the Christian response to this? Well, Early Christians believed that every human life, regardless of developmental challenges or gender, um, every child had intrinsic value. Why? Because Christians believe that God became human and died for every single person, which means every single person has value. Every person is known by God, loved by God. Also, they believe, um, as Genesis 1 says, that each person is made in the divine image. In other words, there's something intrinsically beautiful and meaningful about every human person. We reflect God in some mysterious way. And so Christians not only forbade their church members from practicing infanticide, they actively began rescuing babies from the edges of town and then raising them in their own families. Now, notice, they didn't begin protesting in Rome about this. They didn't shame people. They simply lived their peculiar way. I think the application for us is quite clear. We love everyone. We do not shame people. We don't shame mothers or families who have had an abortion. We don't use this to score political points in a culture war. But Christians do believe in the value of every human life, and we do all we can to create a um, a church community where women and children are highly valued, cherished, and supported in ongoing ways. All right, here's the third way that Christians were peculiar. Christians strangely cared for the poor, marginalized, and destitute. I don't mean that they cared in strange ways. I mean the fact that they cared at all was a little bit strange in that culture. So this ties in very closely with my previous point. But basically, in Roman culture, people were not seen as equal, and they were not seen as having intrinsic value. I mean, if you were useful to the state, well, then you had value. If you weren't useful... You did not have value. This is where Christianity really turned the world upside down because you had a group of people who, again, believed that Christ died for everyone and thus everyone had value. And so they were known for their hospitality and their works of mercy toward the poor. 
Here's a quote. I love this. This is from an embarrassed Roman emperor named Julian, who was trying um, quite unsuccessfully to revive worship of the old gods in Rome. He wrote this, For it is disgraceful when no Jew is a beggar and the impious Galileans, that's the name given by Julian to Christians, support our poor in addition to their own. You can almost hear the frustration in his voice, can't you? Like, in fact, Julian had told um, the pagan priests at that time that if they were going to attract new converts, they would have to start caring for the poor like these Christians. <laughs> Isn't that remarkable? Now, Julian reigned from about 361 to 363 AD. So this is like 300 years after Peter wrote his letter. But do you see what just happened? We have a quote from a Roman emperor that is a fulfillment of Peter's exhortation. Remember the verse we started with, verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, and keep in mind, um, in the time of Julian, Christians were being persecuted for their faith. They accuse you of doing wrong, but they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Oh, church, that we could be known for this sort of thing again, that we could be a peculiar people again. Let me go ahead and close with this. The, uh, the Barna organization, a number of years ago, they did a, a five-year study comprised of eight national studies, um, including interviews with all sorts of people, teenagers, young adults, parents, youth pastors, senior pastors, um, but the study of young adults focused on those who were regular churchgoers during their um, child and teen years, who by the age of 15 had completely left the church. So the data um, is summarized in the book, You Lost Me, Why Young Christians Are Leaving Church and Rethinking Faith. Um, but part of what they discuss in this book is the fact that um, young people are, of course, leaving the church rapidly, nearly six of 10 of those, um, I should say six out of 10 of those between the ages of 18 to 29 um, ultimately leave the church. However, what really stood out to me was the language used by these young people when the researchers asked them to describe the church that they were leaving. Here were their top three descriptive words. Exclusive, unfriendly, judgmental. Oh, that hurts my heart. Exclusive, unfriendly, judgmental. You see, what this tells me is, is that becoming out of step with Christ, but in step with culture, which is what we've been doing, th this is not working. I mean, keep in mind, this research was, was not saying this is how outsiders perceive the church. No, no. These are our children. We need to make Christians peculiar again. What I mean is we as a church need to become more peculiar again. So let's be faithful to Christ. Let's be inclusive, compassionate, expansive in our love so that they may glorify God who is in heaven. Let me pray over you. Lord Jesus, make us your peculiar people again. Help us to see as you see, heal as you heal, love as you love, and forgive as you forgive. Help us to pledge allegiance to your kingdom and to care for the poor and the vulnerable among us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.